0: Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad 10 Hey leaders, welcome back. This is uh, Ledge. As you know, I'm a co-founder and managing partner of Ad 10 where we provide outsourced RevOps and bottom of funnel closing for B2B services companies, which makes today's guest very interesting to me because this is all about B2B and payments and money. And as you know, I am very revenue focused. So I've got Adi Ekstein here. He's the co-founder of Amaryllis. Adi, welcome. Why don't you give a introduction of yourself and Amaryllis so that I don't totally screw this up because this is interesting to me and I want you to tell the story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, David. So, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a co-founder at Amarillis Payment Solutions. Amarillis is a cloud-based platform that lets software companies embed payments, monetize payments, and really become payment facilitators. Um, the reason we started the company is that we noticed a pattern in the market that uh, companies kept building the same payment systems in-house over and over again. Unlike, for example, CRM software, you would not build your own CRM software these days, and we didn't think you should build your own payment systems uh, either. So we decided to take all our knowledge, know-how, and expertise, and mold it into a technology stack that others can use so they don't need to reinvent the payments wheel, so to speak. Uh, And really, a a platform is most suitable for uh, marketplaces, uh, enterprises, uh, B2B software company or well-funded startups that want a shortcut to this market. And they can operate really in any industry. We serve clients in e-commerce, retail, grocery delivery, ticketing, uh, and many other industries as well.
0: So when you say monetize payments, talk to me about that. What does that actually mean from the business standpoint?
1: Yeah, so maybe that's a good segue to payment facilitation. Payment facilitation, let's uh, clarify that distinction because that's the key really to monetize payments these days. Uh, A payment facilitator, or Payfac in short, uh, is a company that provides mini payment processing services, so to speak and um, they get a permission from a real payment processor to accept payments on behalf of their merchants and in the process they get to decide who are they going to do business with which merchants so they can sign up those merchants very quickly and that's where the monetization piece comes a charge a fee on each and every transaction running through the system so uh, let's take a, a look at two examples and it will become very clear. Uh, two very well-known companies are MindBody and Shopify. Uh, MindBody provides software to uh, manage fitness, wellness, and beauty services to tens of thousands of merchants. And Shopify, everybody are familiar with Shopify. Uh, It's an e-commerce platform that powers online stores, and they serve millions of businesses. Uh, And the interesting part uh, to keep in mind from both of these examples is that uh, after they started facilitating the payments of their customers, a large portion of the revenue starts coming from their payment monetization and not from the sales of their own software. That is the key here. Uh, And if we're talking about the benefits of monetizing payments and becoming a payment facilitator, the top benefits are number one, creating a new revenue stream. What company doesn't want to do that? Uh, As a payment facilitator, you really get to tap and charge a margin, a fee. Uh, On all payments, on all merchants that your platform serves. That's that's number one. Uh, Number two is that you can speed up substantially your merchant onboarding process. Uh, Today, uh, if your platform enables payments for your merchants, uh, you have to either send them or refer them to a payment processor where they have to fill up forms and to get what we call a merchant account. And that takes time. It can take days, it can even take weeks or you need to collect all that information yourself, and that includes a lot of sensitive information like social security numbers, bank account information, uh, your merchant company incorporation documents, the ownership information, not exactly the information you want to, to keep with your files, and you have to then uh, deliver that to the payment processor and everything starts uh, from there again. And really, when you become a payment facilitator, you get the permission to underwrite and decide for yourself who you're going to do business with and who you're not going to do business with. so You can make decisions instantly. Think about Uber who can decide instantly uh, if to accept a new driver or think about Airbnb who can decide instantly if they want to accept a new apartment on their marketplace. So that's number two. And number three is really once you start doing that, your valuation goes up because now you have more customers and you monetize them better and you increase your bottom line.
0: I understand. So if you are, yeah, you're providing a service whereby the customer you serve, your customer, needs to accept payments from their customer, you can fully facilitate that and you can take a percentage point or or some kind of other uh transaction-based fee on top of it. So uh I'm sure a lot of founders are familiar with uh integrating Stripe. So draw comparisons there. I'm sure that happens a lot for you.
1: Yeah. So when we speak about payment facilitation, uh, there is a value ladder and you can start small and then grow up big. So on the on the small end of the scale, you can say I'm new to monetizing payments, uh, I don't have history, I don't have knowledge, and most importantly, I don't want to take any risk because I don't know how to manage that risk. Risk can come from customers that pay with credit cards, and that could be fraudulent. That's typically not the biggest risk. The biggest risk is that you will uh, decide to work with a merchant that they themselves can create fraud. That's where the biggest risks come from. And uh, in a typical fashion, they will process a volume of trans- transactions, they'll get the money, and the next thing you hear is some complaints or people want their refunds or chargebacks, and the merchant is long gone. Uh, so you can say, a small merchant can say, I- I'm not equipped to deal with that. And then one of the good entry points is Stripe. Stripe gives you a very nice set of tools Uh, that solve everything on on that entry level. And the price you pay for that is, one, a higher commission. So, the commission that you pay Stripe is high. So, it will be more difficult for you to monetize on top of that. There is only so much you can charge your merchants or so much your merchants will agree to pay for their transactions. And number two, you're kind of putting yourself in the hands of Stripe. They can decide at any point that they want don't want to do a business with some of your merchants or that they don't want to do business with you. Maybe some indicators will light up. And to no fault of your own, you're blocked and you can't continue to do business. I have to say at the same time, Stripe is great. And for most merchants, it's great. You just need to to keep in mind those things. So as you grow, you want to grow into tools or programs that give you more independence and more security so you can control your own destiny.
0: No, I completely understand. That makes a ton of sense. And I can say I'm both a Stripe customer, very happy. And I have clients who are you know, randomly trying to deal with Stripe holding back $25,000 of their money and they can't make their payroll, you know, so both sides of that equation, I totally get it. You know, it it sort of, it solves one problem. And then at some scale, which you'd think would be larger than that, you know, I've, I've got clients doing up to a hundred thousand dollars a month in Stripe. And you start to wonder about like the P the, the payment fees and the, you know, the different things. So at what, at what metrics maybe would, a uh, companies start thinking about a solution like yours? Uh, Maybe, I don't know if there's revenue, transaction volume, different sort of metrics to pay attention to.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, We spoke about the value ladder where Stripe is on the smaller end of the scale. Uh, There are are other solutions. We, as Amarilis, we are on the totally opposite part of the ladder. We are up here, we are serving enterprise customers or uh, customers that have enough business volume or enough business needs. So if we want to put it in numbers, Typically, our customers are going to do around $1 transactions a month or $50 million a year or more in annual revenue. And that's where they are large enough so they can become their own payment facilitators. They can get sponsorship from a bank that lets them do everything that they need to do just like I said, on board merchant, transact, they will get very low fees from their acquiring partners and then they can monetize above and beyond that on their customers. And somewhere in the middle, Is those companies, just like you said, your clients that start with Stripe go even to 100,000 a month and keep growing, and somewhere around the 25 million give or take per year in annual volume. And again, it's a rough estimate, depends on the specific business. They can start migrating to a more dedicated managed payment facilitation model, which is similar to Stripe, but is more bare-bone and give you, some other company will give you the permission to onboard the merchants rapidly. You're still not gonna take any risk. The other provider will take the risk. So it's kind of in between. And they're gonna charge you less fees than Stripe in that case, so you can better monetize your transaction. So it's somewhere in the middle and that's suitable for a lot of businesses. Why is grow up out of Stripe? or that they want a, an entry-level solution where they don't take risk and they're willing to sacrifice uh, the monetization part a little bit. The other disadvantage of that model is that the custo- your merchants are not really your merchants. Uh, the third party service provider is going to onboard them. They are going to become their merchants. The valuation of their company is going to grow more than yours. So it's a good step right in the middle to transition to. And then when you're ready, pick it up and go all the way to the real payment facilitation model.
0: And similar to saying like a Stripe, then what would be the familiar brands that people would know in that that tier?
1: Um so I would say ProPay is a good name. If you Google ProPay, you can get all the information and they're a good name, good brand, big company. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Got it. Just so people are comparing as they move up the ladder. Okay. So top of ladder, Amaryllis. Totally amazing. So if anybody's listening and you're in 1 million transactions per month, 50 million annual, you want to become a facilitator, I got your guy. So now let's talk about okay. Most of our listeners maybe are not that big. But they sure want to become a company like you that's serving enterprise and they want to develop from from scratch and grow their company so that they can serve major clients of of that type and of that pedigree. So let's talk about your journey there, you know, from the beginning where I'm guessing it was probably you and co-founder, you know, either uh, in a garage or in a co-working space, kitchen table, you know, something like that. And uh, start me there, You know, tell the story of, of the path to, to where you uh, got to.
1: Yeah, so maybe I'll start a little bit before that with how I got into payments to begin with. And that was over 20 years ago in 1999. I almost k- skipped the graduation in college during the dot-com era and went straight to my first job out of college. And I was lucky enough to be a, a part of a very small team that invented a mobile face-to-face payments which was the precursor to what you know today is Apple Pay and Google Pay. And uh, I don't know if you remember what kind of phone you had in 1999. Do you remember? Uh, it was uh, one of those little Nokias. Yeah. So.
0: With, the, with the T9 text. And uh, it was that when, when cell phones went from flip to very, very, very tiny. <laughs> Yeah. And then all of a sudden got big again. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) It was that little tiny red Nokia. I don't remember the model number, but I I do remember. And and ultimately, right after that was the BlackBerry Pearl, which was magical, you know, maps and all kinds of stuff. You know, that was where it really started to be like, wow, you know, this is this is cool.
1: Yeah, exactly that. So you touch on it. The phones back then were tiny Nokia's or a Motorola StarTech or any version of a flip phone that you can imagine. But really, there were no smartphones. There was no internet on phones, and there were no apps, and there was no app store. Even that was eight years ahead in the future.
0: Oh, way, way <laughs> ahead. Yeah, we we had to type in text messages with the normal
1: keypad. there yeah. wasn't even
0: keyboards. <laughs>
1: Exactly that. Uh, So we found a way to put an app on those phones. Uh, We actually put it on the SIM card of the phone in a very secure way. Uh, and we partnered with a telco provider with Orange Telecom, and we launched the first ever commercial uh, mobile face-to-face payment solution and uh, allowed people to go and buy groceries or go to a restaurant or to a pharmacy and pay for the goods with their phones. So that's how I started. Uh, And then throughout the years, I went ahead and designed uh, numerous systems for complex payments problems numerous solutions, I won a number of awards, one of them from Steve Ballmer, when he was CEO of Microsoft. And that's really uh, how I got into Amarillis. After all those years, together with my co-founder, Ori Hay, we, we really saw that everybody are building the same payment system out there, and we wanted to give them a solution that they can use. And we weren't that successful at the beginning. We had a great solution, was the best uh, best in the market, but we weren't successful, we didn't get traction. And one day we had a big customer with an RFP and, and we couldn't, uh, we just couldn't sell and they, they wanted a few things that we didn't have. So we ended up calling them and asking them, if we do that for you, if we give you the, that one thing that you really need to go to market, will you work with it? And they said, absolutely. And that was our big breakthrough. That customer was a nationwide insurance a small uh, insurance company probably the largest private insurance company <laughs> not uh, in small America. for anybody who's not
0: paying attention yeah uh, right
1: and that's how we discovered our our unfair advantage on the market uh, and that uh, other um, owners can relate to uh, we found that uh, enterprise clients always need Uh, One big thing or three, or one big thing and three little things, but without them, they they can't go to market. They want to go to their industry in their way. And uh, luckily enough, we built such a a great technology that it was highly customizable and flexible that we could always add those things. And for all the clients afterwards, we always said, We'll do whatever you need. You need this, we'll do that. And we let them go to market in rapid time. Uh, and that was uh, where we found our sweet spot, yes.
0: That's a really interesting story for a lot of providers who mix effectively what you're doing is mixing a services business, such as custom development and implementation professional services with the software business where you are essentially have two different combinations of, of billing models then, uh, is, that, is that true?
1: Almost, we bundle everything together more often than not, we throw in those customizations to serve the customer better. So they, they see that we have the best customer service uh, in the market. Uh, but you're right. It's a little bit two models that we merge together to become successful.
0: Right. Yeah. And a lot of businesses face that, and especially in the the software realm. So I guess then the real key for allowing that in a cost-effective manner, I mean, you're saying you roll it in, but you still have that expense, right? You know, so like as as a business scales up, you can roll in services as an extra, uh, basically a customer success measure, right, and a customer service measure. Uh, but you still face the cost of doing that, and at the beginning of a business, that's very cumbersome. You ultimately will end up with enough economies of scale that you can do it. But I bet you also architected your solution and continue to re-architect your solution to allow for cost-effective customizations, probably in some kind of modular or web services type of, of fashion?
1: Yes, absolutely. So there are a few key points here that you, you touched on, and uh, you're very right that uh, the, the first two are A, to have a great solution. You need a great technology that is flexible and customizable if you want to keep changing it um, at low cost. Uh, So that's absolutely. Uh, Number two, you need the resources that are cost-effective and that you can scale. Uh, And we were also lucky lucky right from the get-go to decide that we are not going to outsource our dev resources. We wanted them to be 100% our employees. So we uh, got our own dev center at a very cost-effective rate, and we continue manage that uh, all the way to this day, where all the employees are ours. We take care of them, we manage them day to day, and that works for us very well. Much better than outsourcing. Uh, than outsourcing, yes.
0: Yeah, and that's a classic situation that every every startup the software company finds itself. in. do I. Do I effectively outsource? Do I, you know, how much control do I maintain over the development resources if I do outsource? Uh, how do I find an effective partner? And then I guess, so you went the, the direction of uh, in, I'm guessing somewhere in a different country, not US, have spun up a dev center. And I mean, what was that process like? Because I mean, that's, gosh, you're starting, basically starting a business unit in an entirely different country. So uh, how do you even put your head around that?
1: Yeah, so I was lucky enough, first of all, to to know my co-founder, Ori Hay, for many years. In fact, we met in that startup I told you earlier about in mobile payments, and then we knew each other for many years. So when we decided to do business together, it was a very easy decision. Um, so that's one. And same thing, since we, we both came from the dev industry and the tech industry and the software industries, throughout the years, we had, we know people, we had the connections. So when we wanted to create our own dev center, we really have all the resources in place to execute on that very easily. And uh, we decided to have our dev center in Eastern Europe where we have uh, our own people managing it. And that also worked very well for us.
0: Did you have the people on the ground there already? Or did you start from, from scratch having to figure that out?
1: We knew the the top management on the ground and that would help us trust them. And they build the whole infrastructure for us and they, they are working for us. They're employees of our company. They are very happy and we're very happy that they're with us.
0: No, that's, that's fantastic. So you, you had to grow from a a tiny team to then a, a multinational team. What have you learned? along that process because you, you really then would have, you're really thinking about remote and distributed team management across time zones. You have to do a, a company culture that is often you know only by screen, years ago would have been only by phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have you learned there because that's obviously a really important topic now for people building teams.
1: Well, I could say that it's really important to dedicate a lot of time and spend a lot of time, even if it's virtual time with your team. Uh, there are any number of oh, number of ways to do that on Skype, on Zoom, uh, daily morning meetings, uh, checkouts throughout the day. But for us, uh, it's really not fire and forget. We spend a lot of time either uh, in person or virtual, and we don't just send tasks via email or digital way and expect them to miraculously get resolved. And pre-COVID, I would also say uh, invest the time and the money to go and visit on-premise as often as you can. When we first started the business, I went and spent about six months over there. Uh, only got back home once a month. So if you want to to create a successful company and a team that will stay with you for many years, you need to pay the price. Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And. Uh... How have you distributed now? So you have most of your workforces in Eastern Europe. And then you and co-founder are are in US, or how do you how do you have the teams laid out?
1: Yeah, so we are headquartered here in the US in the West Palm Beach area in Florida. And then we have our Dev Center in Eastern Europe. And we have our tech support, some development, and my co-founder, they're all located in Israel, in the Israel Silicon Valley. <laughs> That's
0: fantastic. And how do you handle sales uh for a for a SaaS company, you know, because there's a lot of negotiation that goes on especially at that enterprise level. I've done the the 60-page master service agreement for the the enterprise company and, you know, the 9-month sales process, and I think people founders particularly sometimes underestimate how hard it is to sell into a large company. Can you shed any light and successful tips on that?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's worth uh, mentioning that uh, the world changed last year due to COVID. And prior to COVID-19, our sales and marketing was heavily related to conferences, industry conferences, uh, face-to-face meetings, large gathering. Uh, We would even fly into a, a potential customer, spend time with them, do whiteboard sessions, which were very helpful, but all that was gone. Uh, And uh, we invested a lot in transitioning to the digital age, and now 100% of our marketing and sales is done digitally and it's possible. Uh, So two things I can say, one, you can go and learn and borrow a lot of techniques from B2C uh, and what people are doing today, cutting edge things in the B2C area and bring them over to B2B. If you have to build your marketing and sales from scratch today, uh, that's what we are doing. The other thing, uh, when you're selling to enterprises, just like you said, it's a long sales cycle. You need to be ready. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do to tweak the cycle. That's what we are doing today. The number of calls you are going, the focus of each call. Is it just uh, Zoom? Is it just phone call? Are you going to do a demo? Are you going to do a screen share? There is a lot of. of optimization to be done there. Uh, uh, But then it's still going to be a long sales cycle. Uh, Enterprises have their own requirements, demands, You need to be very patient because uh, there are a lot of people involved, different departments, legal, finance, product. Everybody needs to to sign off on uh, what you're selling. You need to build a relationship, uh, of course. Uh, And then you also need to understand how uh, enterprise companies are buying. And Just like any other customer out there, they don't care about you. They care about themselves. And uh, the quicker you understand that, uh, the quicker you're going to do more sales. You really need to solve their problems, their needs, uh, mitigate their, fear, their fears, uh, and sell them the, their desires. Uh, it's as simple as that. Yeah, and just be patient and go through the motion uh, to completion. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What did you find, uh, you know, most founders I, I find are overly in love with their feature set. And, you know, it's it's their baby. They developed it from day one. They want to tell you all about all the bells and whistles. What did you find were really the most important differentiators? Because my guess is that it's value-based and not feature-based, that you don't slam the customer with 45 slides about all the features. That that comes later. But what What do the customers really, really want? hire you versus somebody else
1: yeah it's a great question i think the first thing you need to do is figure out what they really want Uh, a lot of time i go on sales calls and uh, people are giving me a demo that lasts 45 minutes and while i get a lot from it uh, maybe i do or maybe i don't they don't get anything from that they don't know at the end of the call anymore that they knew at the beginning So the first thing is to understand that you need to you need to understand what the customer wants, and you can only do that when you create an environment where you can ask questions, and they are willing to to give you the answers. And typically, uh, doing a demo, a one-hour demo, and showing one thousand features may not be the best way to achieve that. Uh, That can come in later. Yeah,
0: (laughs) you know it's hard. I think because we often learn, particularly as founders who are not in the sales seat. You know, like there there are disciplines to selling. Whether you follow a playbook or your favorite book, or or you just kind of figured it out. That's what I did. There's a natural feeling to it where you get used to it, and I think as you do many sales calls, you start to learn how to do it better. Instead of the, can you tell me your pain points or what's keeping you up at night? You know, there there are these stock phrases that that we use that are just a, a sign that we don't really know how to sell, right? So what are some of the key questions that you kick off with with a new hot enterprise prospect?
1: I would start off, so maybe before that, another key to understand is that people's attention span today is really short, a lot shorter than you think.
0: Very short, yeah. It's the YouTube generation, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, if you think that uh, after five minutes, especially in a remote environment, they're not already checking their Twitter feed or what uh, emails they got, uh, you need uh, you need to adjust yourself. So you need to really start strong right out of the gate uh, and create curiosity. You need to get them engaged. You need to have them... Uh, want or ask what's next from their end because you raise that curiosity. So I think that's key to begin with, and then then they will want to hear more about you. Then uh, I would ask questions. I would uh, uh, talk about myself, talk about the company very briefly. Again, this is not a fifteen minutes uh, lecture about uh, uh, the company. As as soon as you can provide social proof or proof, mention your uh, your customers, mention brand names that are working with you, and then I don't think it's wrong to ask questions, uh, ask about them, what their company is, and and ask all the relevant questions that you think are relevant. I find that most people that are really buyers and that they have a pain point, they would um, happily tell you what what the problem is so you can solve it if you create the right environment.
0: Well, and you you have one of my favorite selling propositions, and I don't care what thing this is, technology service, whatever. if you can come into somebody and you can tell them, I'm going to make you more revenue, that's going to put, put the antenna up right away. And I think, I don't know why this is, but many, many B2B solutions are automatically categorized by maybe the founder or the sales or marketing team as we will save you time, we will save you money. We will make things more efficient, you know, and all that I think is okay, but I can tell you that, and maybe, maybe you agree, but you get people's attention. If you can figure out how to position your thing, that you will make them more revenue. Uh, I think it's one of the most important things you can do in B2B. Do you? Resonate with that, is that true from your perspective?
1: I totally agree. I think that the things that you mentioned are very valuable. Uh, saving money, saving time, uh, solving pain points, relationships, uh, losing weight, these are all great. Probably at the top of that list is making you more money because like you said, who doesn't want to make more money?
0: <laughs> I think that nobody really wakes up at night and thinks anything except I need more sales. You know, <laughs> more revenue from a transaction base uh, you know, that's, that's just as cha-ching and I don't need to solve my other problems. Most people don't want to cut their costs. They just want to make more money. <laughs> now, I think I it's honestly true. You know, it's, it's hard work to cut costs. You have to cut people. You have to do hard work. It's not hard work to make more revenue. And I think you don't have to overcome a lot of that, you know, sort of emotional baggage if you just help somebody make more money. So if you could position your thing that way, absolutely do it. It's one of my favorite tricks. So Adi, what's, What's next? Uh, You know, future of payments. I mean, there's so much. Gosh, there's the consolidation in in fintech and, you know, there's uh, plaid gets bought plaid gets unbought. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of transactional stuff. Everything's changing. Mobile devices, uh, man, worldwide payments, crypto. I mean, just, you know, paint me a picture. What's on your
1: mind? Uh, Yeah, I think we saw a lot of things change in the last year or so since COVID, uh, which is great for a lot of companies. Uh, We definitely uh, see a shift to card not present transactions. You used to go and buy groceries at the store, now you're you're, uh, maybe buying them online with card not present. That creates a lot of push to, for companies to really invest in their omni-channel operations to solve all the use cases they didn't really have to pay attention to until now. What happens if I buy online and pick up in store? If I uh, buy online and want to return in store? If I want to pick it up in the same day? If I want to pick it up and then pay with a different card, if I want to return it and have the refund to a different card. All these scenarios that are really from the omni-channel world, uh, now, now companies and merchants are really starting to invest in them. Uh, we spoke about mobile payments, definitely a big shift to contactless payment. The issuers, the card issuers were already equipped with the new contactless cards and definitely covid pushed that uh, into the market so they uh, ship more contactless card because consumers want to buy uh, more with a contactless card not to touch anything not to enter the pin on the same pin pad that everybody were touching before you. Uh, So that's definitely another shift. At the beginning of last year, we saw a big shift to ACH payments, especially in B2B SaaS companies. ACH payments, unlike credit cards, can offer some cost savings. And that's where company, that was the go-to move initially, either to switch to ACH to pay less fees or to buy a bigger packages, like an annual package, again, to reduce the fee of something you're going to consume anyways. So, so that's a, that was a big shift. And then out of all that, I would say that companies that start dealing with all these different channels and omni-channels are really starting or need to start to pay attention to profitability analysis on a per-transaction level. Uh, Now, there are more transactions involved, uh, shipping returns, chargebacks. You want to look on a per-merchant basis, per-payment option, ACH versus credit card versus check. And what you really want to do is analyze it to make sure you're profitable on any level. So even if it's a card not present transaction and the PICA and it's a shipment, uh, you want to make sure you are always profitable and it's hard to to understand that now with all the factors that get involved in our transactions.
0: Well, at least there's no shortage of people that need your help then. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is good, this is good. Adi, I, uh, fascinating conversation, you know, thank you so much. Anybody who wants to get in touch with you or Amaryllis, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, you can head over to our website at amaryllispay.com. Fill up a short form. We'll get in touch with you right away. Uh, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. You can connect with me over there. Just look for my handle, uh, Adi Ekstein, A-D-I-E-K-S-H-T-A-I-N, or follow me on Twitter at Adi e
0: Fantastic. Thanks for spending time with us. Really interesting. I hope you have an awesome day.
1: Thank you, David. You too. Thank you for listening,
0: and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.